0: Acts chapter 4 today, we will be continuing on in this chapter, continuing, in fact, in the same narrative that uh, Aaron uh, preached on last week. Acts chapter 4, we will be looking at verse 13 through verse 22 today. Acts chapter 4, 13 through 22. If you would, church family, stand with me for the reading of God's word. Acts chapter 4, verse 13, the word of God says this. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than forty years old. This is the word of God. You, God. you may be seated. If you would bow your heads and pray with me. Lord God, we come today and ask once again, as we do every day, as we do each week when we preach, and Lord, as we certainly rightfully should do, we come and we ask for your help today. We ask that the Holy Spirit would open our eyes to see the word of God truly and rightly, open our hearts to receive the word. Lord, I pray that you would open our minds up to the reality and the truth of who Jesus Christ is, and that this revelation of who he is and the power that is found in his name might continually seep into our minds and into our hearts and saturate our lives, Lord. I pray today that we might study these words and find hope, find encouragement, Lord, as people who are right now sojourners in a strange land. We look forward to the day when we, when we are ultimately brought home into your arms. But Lord, as long as we are here, we need your help. We need your instruction. And We need examples, and so, Lord, I ask today that we might find that, all of that, from your word here in Acts chapter 4, and we pray this in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. I want to start today by telling you the story of a, of a young woman, a young woman whose name was Vivia Perpetua. This might not be a name that you're familiar with, but uh, it's, a, it's a name that I think is worth being familiar with. It's a name that you're probably not familiar with because we frankly know very, very little about this woman. We know that this woman lived around the year 200 AD. We know that she lived in a part of North Africa called Carthage, and we know that she was martyred for her faith. That is essentially all that we know about this woman. Very little information that we have other than how she died, and we know this because of a diary that she kept while she was imprisoned for her faith, that of her diary and a diary of another prisoner, we have just this snapshot of the end of this young woman's life. This woman, who's commonly called Perpetua, was around 22 years of age when she was martyred for her faith. And as I said, we know very little about her other than a few details. We know that she lived in this part of North Africa, a part of North Africa that at this time faced great persecution under the emperor uh, Septimius Severus. We know that she had a pagan father and a Christian mother. And that not very long before she was martyred, she had made the decision to trust in Jesus Christ for her salvation. That the Lord had revealed Christ to her and she had believed on him and and was baptized just shortly before she was imprisoned for her faith. Her along with all the other members of her baptism class. The story of her martyrdom though, is so inspiring. Just these last few days of her life that are recorded for us because of these two diaries. Nothing else about her life is known hardly. Just these bits of information. And yet this is enough. The story of this woman's martyrdom was so inspiring that Augustine himself preached four sermons about this woman's death. She was in prison for some time under the persecution of the emperor. And there she faced many hardships, including not being able to breastfeed her infant child who she was separated from. But some of the most gut-wrenching aspects of the story of Perpetua are the times when her father, who as I said was a pagan, came to her in prison, in her captivity, and pleaded with her, begged her to renounce her faith so that she might be set free so that she might be reunited with him and with her mother and with her child. And these are absolutely gut-wrenching portions of the story where her father, a man who clearly loved her very much. He was a pagan, but he was not a man who, who hated his daughter. In fact, he loved her well and raised her well. And in a sense, that makes the story even more sad that as her father was pleading with her and begging with her out of his love for her, he begged her to renounce her faith in Jesus Christ, so that she might be set free. He begged her to consider his gray hair, consider how he had loved her, consider her child, all of these things that so begged the question, how could this woman stand firm in the midst of this? But indeed, amidst all this, as her father came on more than one occasion and begged her, pleaded with her to renounce her faith, she stood firm. And she said to her father, this one of her most famous quotes, and as I said, she's not known for, for very much other than the last moments of her life, in, that, in these moments, after one particularly heartfelt, gut-wrenching plea by the sake of her father that, that seriously struck her to the core, yet even still, this was her response to her father's pleading. She said, it will all happen in the prisoner's dock as God wills, for you may be sure That we are not left to ourselves, but are all in his power. And with this resolve, she would ultimately be put to death at the hands of the emperor for her faith in Jesus Christ. Perpetua, like Peter and John here in Acts chapter 4, was put in a situation, was put in a place where she was forced to do one of two things. Either she was going to obey her Lord, she was going to obey the words of Christ and remain faithful to him or she was going to submit to and obey the governing authority that was over her. And we see from her and from Peter and John in our story today what the right response to these situations is. If you recall from the story as we've been reading in the book of Acts over the past couple weeks, Peter and John have, have healed this crippled man. A man, as we were told, was 40 years old at this time and been crippled from birth. And Peter and John... By the power of the Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name, performed this amazing miracle. And this man is, is brought back to being whole. He is able to walk and, and jump and leap and worship the Lord in this way. And in light of this, because of this, the Jewish authorities, the, the temple rulers, brought them in. They are disgusted with them. They are frustrated with them. They bring them in. They arrest them. And they, they question them concerning these things. And as Aaron so adequately pre- preached last week, We see from them the the obedience to the command that we were given in Scripture to be bold. And Peter boldly preaches before these Jewish authorities and boldly proclaims the name of Jesus. And then our passage today starts with these words. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. If I were a betting man, I would say that most of us in here, if not all of us in here, hear these words, and desire that they would be said of us. That people would look at us and see, even if we are not educated people, that we are bold in speaking the name of Jesus Christ. And they might be astonished. Today we'll get a a better picture of what this kind of boldness looks like, the kind of boldness that Aaron called us to last week. And we'll see a little bit of how we might prepare for this kind of boldness. And ultimately, what we will also see is the risks involved in this kind of boldness. The first thing that we'll see as we see these lessons in boldness, As we see the first example that we have from the apostles here, John and Peter, is the example that we need to follow in spending time with Jesus. We are called, point number one, to spend time with Jesus if we are to be bold. As I said, our opening verse today says, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. This statement, they recognized that they had been with Jesus, is a very important statement for us to hear today. The temple leaders not only recognized that these men were common, that they were uneducated in the sense that they had not been to the proper rabbinical schools. They had knowledge and information that seemed to be above their pay grade in a sense. And they recognized that that these men had no reason to be able to speak of the Old Testament scriptures the way they did. They had a knowledge that surpassed their standing in society. And they saw that and concluded and also recognized that they had been with Jesus. Now, some have taken this phrase they saw that they had been with Jesus and in a sense over-spiritualized it. They take it to mean that there was some sort of aura around these men Peter and John as though they were in a sense floating and and just looked as those who had been with Jesus or or in a sense like they their faces were shining in some way like Moses after he came down from Mount Sinai and and I don't think that that kind of over-spiritualization that kind of adding to the text is really necessary in order for us to see the significance of this statement here. I don't think that's really what was happening. I don't think there was some sort of particular aura or or mysticism around these men that you just felt the presence of Jesus when you were with them. I think this statement here is saying something equally as important as as that though. What's actually happening here is that these apostles were recognized as having been with Jesus Because they lived like Jesus lived. They did the things Jesus did, and they spoke like Jesus spoke. They had sat under his teaching for years, and now were delivering the same kind of messages. The same kind of message that Jesus spoke, these disciples were now speaking, were now preaching in a very similar way that Jesus did. And in a very similar way that Jesus constantly confounded and frustrated these Jewish leaders, so now these apostles were confounding them and frustrating them just like Jesus did. One commentator said it might have well been a part of it that these Jewish leaders said, I remember this kind of annoyance. These guys sure do remind me of Jesus and the way they carry themselves, the way they conduct themselves and the things they say. And this is very instructive for us. I think even more instructive than over-spiritualizing this phrase that they had been with Jesus. Instead of taking it as some sort of of mystical aura that should surround believers so that people just sense that we have been around Jesus, isn't it better that they hear the words we say, see the lives we live, and see that it is marked by a commitment to Christ, marked by having sat under his teaching, This is very instructive for us to have this phrase said of us is something that we also desire. That people would look at us and say, it seems like they have been with Jesus. Not because of some gut feeling I have, but because they know the words of Jesus. They know the teachings of Jesus and they speak in ways similar to him. And that's what we ought to aspire to. We ought to aspire to have people look at us and say, wow, it seems like you have spent time with Jesus, because you know his words. One of the passages that Aaron read for us last week was Luke twenty-one fourteen through 15, a really important passage and one that relates directly to the situation the apostles are in, where Jesus says to his disciples, settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate beforehand how you answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. And as Aaron pointed out for us last week, what he is saying is, you don't need to worry about being prepared for this moment of trial. For in that moment, I will be with you. I will give you the words to say. I will give you the heart you need. I will give you the boldness and strengthen your knees. But many have taken this verse and and thought of it as saying that for us as believers, we need not study. We need not try. We need not put in any, any certain amount of effort in order to be prepared when we face opposition, in order to be prepared when we come up against the world. It's a great thing to know that we need not prepare for persecution or or these kinds of things, but it does not mean that we are given an allowance for laziness in our study of God's word and our sitting under his teaching. It's kind of like what, what he's saying here and how we need not prepare, need not meditate beforehand how we will answer in these situations of persecution. It's like a commercial that that used to air a while back. I found it to be an interesting commercial. At least there for a while, there were these commercials that would show up of of basically like instructing parents on how to talk to their children about drugs and and alcohol and these kinds of difficult issues. And in this commercial, a a mother and father were, were, it starts out and this father, this man yells and and then slams his door, and he says, I hate you, and he slams the door. And then it shows this woman, the mom, she says, get out of here, I don't want to hear it, and slams the door, and, and then the father and it goes back and forth a few times, and, and then you kind of are taken back and realize that what these parents are doing is they are preparing themselves for when they have these difficult conversations with their teenagers, be prepared to have the door slammed in your face. Be prepared for them to hate you and, and kind of get yourself used to having these kinds of things happen so that you don't back down, so that you don't shy away from these conversations. And I think sometimes that's what we think we need to do when preparing for opposition from this world and preparing for persecution. Many of us have probably thought what we might do or how difficult it might be be if we were put in a situation like Peter and John or, or even more like Perpetua as we spoke at the beginning of the sermon, where we are told either renounce your faith or die. And in a sense, we can spend too much time thinking and dwelling on that and hoping and wondering and fearing whether or not we will be committed to the Lord. And I think what Jesus is intending to tell us here in this passage in Luke, when he says, meditate not on these things, is saying, in those moments, those of you who have true saving faith, I will keep you. I will hold you. I will cause you to stand firm in the midst of this. You don't need to be practicing persecution with one another when persecution comes i will be with you but as i said this is no excuse for laziness because what we also read is in first peter 3 13 through 15 that we are actually called to be prepared to speak to unbelievers for peter in first peter 3 says now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason of the hope that is in you. Always being prepared. The preparation that we are called to is the preparation that people will look at and say, they have been with Jesus. Why because we have been committed to his teachings. Because we have been committed to studying his life and his ministry and the application of redemption to us found in him. And we, when we commit ourselves to these things, to Christ, to his teaching and to the gospel, we can trust that we will stand firm in the end. If we want to be known as people who have been with Jesus, we must commit ourselves to the words of Jesus and when I say the words of Jesus, I mean all the scripture, not just the red letters, but all of divine scripture, the very word of the Lord, Christ himself has spoken. Point number two, we're not only to be with Jesus, but we are called to be prepared to make waves. In verses 15 through 17 in our text, we see that the apostles certainly made waves. Verse 15 through 17 says, But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. The apostles have have caused, caused such a ruckus here that... These Jewish officials, these leaders at the temple, arrested them, bring them in for questioning, and are now left with this dilemma, what on earth are we going to do with these men? And it's a very difficult dilemma for them. These disciples have made such waves among the religious crowd and and among the people here in Jerusalem. And now when I say that we as believers ought to be prepared to make waves, I don't just mean that we ought to be outgoing and And be good, confident public speakers. There are are some who will mistake what we are here talking about, both Aaron and myself today, as boldness and that which will certainly make waves. I think there's times in which we can confuse boldness with self-confidence. There are a lot of people in the world and certainly a lot of Christians who are very self-confident. They are able to stand before a group of people and speak without fear, they're able to walk into a room of complete strangers and just make themselves at home. And we think about that and we think, yes, that is bold and, and that is a lot of confidence. But that kind of self-confidence, while it has its place and it's certainly not a bad thing, does not equal the kind of spiritual boldness that the Bible is laying out for us here in the book of Acts. In fact, I would probably argue That the most self-confident people, who are oftentimes also people pleasers, oftentimes desire attention for themselves, oftentimes have the hardest with true biblical boldness. And I would include myself in that category. For while I find it easy as an outgoing person, as someone who is very extroverted, I find it easy to walk into a place of complete strangers and make myself at home. But what I find extremely difficult is to walk into that same situation and speak the words of Christ and risk having all of those people not just think, wow, this guy's making waves. He sure is very talkative. He sure is very friendly. But wow, I do not care for this guy who's talking about Jesus. This is what making waves and spiritual boldness looks like. Proclaiming the name of Christ. And the kind of waves this brings is not just shaking things up in a fun way, is not just bringing attention to what you're saying, but it is entering the gospel into situations where people are going to hate it. The name of Jesus Christ is not a name that is well received among the world. As we see from the Jewish leaders here, the name of Jesus today is just as despised. As it was then. These leaders hated the name of Jesus and hated when anyone spoke it. Which is why they had such an issue with these men. Look back with me at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 4. This is right after they had uh, healed this man and then preached there in the temple at Solomon's portico. And this is what we read. As they were speaking to the people, the priests And the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. The Jewish leaders, the the temple leaders here, it says, were greatly annoyed. Why were they greatly annoyed? What was their beef with these guys? Was it the fact that they healed a man? No, no. That wasn't their problem. They didn't mind that this man was healed. Was it the fact that they were being overly disruptive? Not really. They didn't have that much issue with that. The reason they had a beef with Peter and John was the fact that they were preaching in the name of Jesus. It was the name of Jesus that these Jewish leaders truly hated. And they hated these men because they were there proclaiming his name. All who choose to proclaim the name of Jesus will at some point or another be despised and be hated. This is the kind of boldness and the kind of waves that are going to be made by any who desire to preach the gospel. And we as believers need to know that they are likely going to hate us when we take on this kind of boldness. But know that they hate us because they hate Christ. And any who would proclaim his name are going to face that same wrath and that same consequence. Aaron pointed out last week that these were the same men, the same Jewish leaders who had tried and falsely convicted Jesus and ultimately had him crucified. They saw Jesus as a threat to their own power and a threat to their own authority. And they certainly could not have that. And so what did they do? They conspired against him and they got rid of him. They had him killed. They had him removed. But did their problem go away when they killed Jesus? Absolutely not. It got a thousand times worse. It reminds me of like, I don't know if you've ever heard, I think this is true, I've never tested it, but if you ever kill a bee, like there's like a hive of bees and there's a bunch of bees around and they can be relatively docile. But when you kill one of them, some sort of pheromone is released that causes the others to be agitated and then, and then likely to sting. Is that true? Can anyone vouch for that? Is that true? No one knows. Aaron says it's true. Whether it's true or not, picture that for a moment. One bee is crushed and then all of the other bees begin to swarm, begin to come, begin to attack. You could go from slightly annoyed to in danger of death very quickly. These men likely thought, if we just kill this one beef, if we kill this one man, the problem will be gone. He's the problem. Jesus is the problem. Little did they know that that would be the spark that would start something far greater. Something that Jesus said the apostles were going to do is laying the groundwork for the, for the church, laying the foundation was going to be even far greater than the works that Jesus did while he was here on earth. They started something they had no idea Their problem did not go away. Their problem only got worse when they killed Jesus. And not only did Jesus not go away, his name began to be spoken of all over. Thousands upon thousands were coming to faith in Jesus Christ day after day. These very same Jewish leaders, we are told, Annas and Caiaphas, the very ones who conspired against Jesus were now looking around and seeing people come to faith in him, hearing his name proclaimed all over. No wonder they were annoyed. Their plan had absolutely backfired on them as the Bible tells us all that they did was bring about the will of God in the death of Jesus. Here the authorities simply had no other recourse but to threaten them and send them out. But as we know, As we know what's coming in the book of Acts, there is more to come. The Jewish leaders don't stop with mere threats, mere words, but we know that there is more that is coming. These are the kind of waves that we can expect to make when we preach the Gospels we're called to do. The third lesson that we learn in boldness is the lesson to stand firm. And we see this, obviously, from the apostles here in verses 18 through 20, when Peter and John say, Well, we see first the the response that they give them. They they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. The Jewish leaders call them in and say, okay, you guys got to stop it. Stop preaching the name of Jesus. Shake their finger. You better stop it right now. And Peter and John said, okay, sorry, we're done. No, that's not what they said. Peter and John respond in verse 19 and say, but Peter and John answered them. Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge. For we cannot speak of what we have seen and heard. The disciples said, you can judge for yourself if it's better for us to listen to God or listen to you. But listen, we have no choice but to speak the name of Christ. We have no choice but to speak of what is true and what he is doing as we have been commanded to do. These disciples stood boldly in the face of these Jewish authorities. How is it that we as believers can stand firm in the face of authority, in the face of persecution like this? There may come a time, and perhaps for you there already has come times, when the authorities that God has placed over you here on this earth are telling you, insisting that you do something in opposition to the authority of God himself. How can we stand firm in these situations? Well, the answer, though difficult, is rather simple. We compare authorities. That's what Peter and John do. They know that these men have a certain amount of authority. But they look at the authority that they have, the authority in which they think we can command this and you better stop. Look at our authority. We have the authority to do things. We have the authority to tell you what to do and what not to do. You better listen to us. Peter and John look at the authority that these Jewish leaders have and say, sure, you might have some authority. But there is another authority that is far higher, far greater, and far more severe than your authority. Whatever it is that you can do to us pales in comparison to the one that can destroy both body and soul in hell. So go ahead, make your threats. Go ahead, destroy our bodies. Your authority is still lacking to that of Christ. Consider and compare authorities. And when you do so, you will see the authority of God carries far more weight than the authority of any earthly leader. Also, consider Christ. This is one of the surest ways to motivate ourselves to stand firm in the face of opposition and persecution. Regularly remind yourself of the gospel, of what Christ has done for you. Just recently, I was having a conversation with someone about a friend of theirs, someone that they know who is Roman Catholic, and this person was speaking about the fact that they have ultimately no hope, no surety that when they die, they will end up in heaven. They have no surety of their salvation. The response to someone in, in conversation was, I hope, I, I mean, I, I hope that when I get there, I find out that, that I'm saved, but I don't know. I can't know. And the reason that this person can't know is because their salvation, their justification before God is based on faulty ground. It is based on the ground of what they can do, how they can work, how well they perform, how well they pray. Certainly in addition to Christ, but not exclusively in Christ. For the believer, when we consider what it is that is going to give us entrance into heaven, How it is that we are going to stand before a holy God and possibly be justified, our works are not included even the slightest. Our justification, if we will stand before a holy God and be declared righteous and granted entrance into his presence, it is only going to be on the basis of Christ's righteousness alone. And that imputed to us by our faith. And with that as the case, when our our faith is in Christ and his righteousness is granted to us, and by that we will be justified before God, as we've already heard twice, third time's the charm, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What a hope that gives us. What a confidence that gives us and boosts in us. There are lots of examples and in the book Pilgrim's Progress, as I've I've said before previously, we've been reading through that, me and a few other men in our men's book club. And it's an absolutely amazing book. And I would recommend it ten times over. Read your Bible and then read Pilgrim's Progress. It's number two for a reason. It's great. And there's example after example that we could look at. We could look at the example of Faithful who was martyred at Vanity Fair and how he stood firm in the face of great opposition and ultimately lost his life. That's a great example. But I want to look at the example example of one hopeful, who after recalling his salvation as he and Christian are, are talking with one another on the road, he recalls his salvation. He recalls how God has justified a sinner like him through the blood of Jesus Christ. And this is what hopeful says. He says, It made me love a holy life and long to do something for the honor and glory of the name of the Lord Jesus. Yea, I thought that had I now a thousand gallons of blood in my body, I could spill it all for the sake of the Lord Jesus. What a statement that was true of hopeful and that ought to be true of us. How much we ought to be willing to spend for Christ. How we ought to be willing to be persecuted and lay it all down for the sake of Christ as we recall what he has done for us. Let us pray for this kind of resolve in the face of any danger, any persecution, any opposition. And like hopeful, let us aspire to it by setting our minds on the gospel of Christ, recalling to mind how we will be justified before him, recalling to mind what Christ has done for us, the death he died for us, and the fact that he rose again, securing for us eternal life. And when you take time to sit and meditate on the truths of the gospel, such as Christ's righteousness as the basis for our justification, as hopeful did, you also will grow in your fervor, will grow in your resolve. I encourage you and implore you that this is true. You know, there's all kinds of, of new agey, uh, practices out there, all kinds of weird things that people talk about and, and talk about meditating and being silent and emptying your mind. And of well, that's a bunch of nonsense. As Christians, we ought to meditate. But in our meditation, we ought not empty our minds, but set our minds on things like this. Take time to dwell upon, meditate on the glories of the gospel in Christ Jesus. His righteousness granted to us, our sin given to him, so that the wrath of God might be poured out on another. The more you dwell on this, the more you will be filled with resolve. The more you will be filled with hope, the more you will be filled with confidence in the face of opposition. Hebrews 12, 3, 12 through 13 calls us to this. In verse 3 of Hebrews 12, we read this. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against him so that you may not grow weary or faint hearted. And then, continuing in verse 12, he says, Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Church family, let us stand firm in the boldness of Christ Jesus. And then, finally, point number four this is my last point. Truth and power are on our side. More hope is to be found in this fact also. That as we read in this text, we see that truth is on the side of the apostles and on the side of those of us who trust in Christ. Look in verse 14. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. They had nothing that they could say against these men. They had healed a guy, and that's great. And the people around them considered them to be heroes for healing this man, and that's great. What did they do wrong? nothing nothing other than preaching the name of Christ one author ff bruce points out that at no point in any of these exchange do these jewish leaders ever attempt to disprove the resurrection which is significant cuz wouldn't that have undone all of this the movement would have ceased right then and there if they just were able to stand up and say the resurrection of jesus christ did not happen here's our evidence Here's his body, movement, over. But they never did, did they? They never did because they could not. Why? Because the truth was on the side of the apostles. Jesus indeed indeed did rise from the grave, and hundreds of witnesses saw him. And his body was nowhere to be found. Why? Because his body was no longer on this earth, but he had ascended to the right hand of the Father, Truth and power are on their side. We see also in verse 16, the Jewish leaders say, what shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. We cannot deny it. Shouldn't that have been the end for these men? Shouldn't they have conceded and said, you're right, what you're doing is in the name of God and good and right. We concede because we have no other argument. But that's not what they did. What we see, in fact, is the character of hard-hearted men. That the hardness of their heart was so severe that even in the face of truth that they could not deny, they still stood in opposition to it, still condemned it, still sought to put it to bed. But church family, we can take great confidence today in knowing that the truth and power are on our side as we stand firm in this world. Even though it doesn't always seem like it. Even though no one else in this world might be on our side. Truth and power is on our side. Because the word of God is on our side. Going back to the story of Perpetua. This woman who at 22 years of age was martyred for her faith. There was another instance described in these diaries. Of when her father came to her in prison. And again he tried so desperately to, to convince her to free herself from this prison, to free herself by renouncing the name of Christ and denying that she was a Christian, and to make the sacrifice to the emperor, this was the, the means by which she could gain her freedom was by making a sacrifice to the emperor, in, in essence, worshiping him, worshiping him. She could have done that and been free, and he was trying begging with her, pleading her, do this <clears throat> And her response to her father in this one instance was this, Father, do you see this base here? She replied, could it be called by any other name than what it is? No, he replied. She said, well, neither can I be called anything other than what I am, a Christian. The end of her story came when she stood in a hearing before the governor and was told to Think of her father as the governor, the servant of the emperor, said, Think of your father, think of your infant son, and offer sacrifices and worship to the emperor. To which this woman, 22 years of age, in humble defiance, simply said, I will not. The governor then asked, Are you a Christian then? And her reply was, But three little yet powerful words. Yes, I am. In the face of this governor who had all authority to do anything to her, she stood with this kind of resolve, saying, I can be called nothing other than what I am. Are you a Christian? Yes, I am. And with that, her fate was sealed. And she was sent to die at the hands of the gladiators and the animals in the arena. The kind of boldness that Aaron preached to us last week, the kind of boldness we see in these stories, it's a boldness that often has a great cost with it. Church family, let us count this cost. It would be foolish of us to to come in here today saying, as the the prophet said, here am I, Lord, send me. Let me be your mouthpiece. Let me proclaim the name of Christ with all the self-confidence in the world. If we fail to count the cost of what it means. Now we might not be put to death for our preaching of Christ. But for many of us it doesn't even have to be that serious. The threat of losing our good name. Losing our reputation. Of being thought of as a Bible thumper. As a bigot for believing Jesus Christ is the only way to salvation. For many of us that is enough to keep us silent. That is enough for us to in practice renounce the name of Christ to the world around us. Let it not be so of us. Let us count the cost. Let us know that this proclamation, this boldness in the Spirit comes at a cost, but let us see what that cost is and compare it to the cost of forsaking Christ. Let us compare the authority of God, the wrath of God, to the wrath of the world and the authority of the world. Our church church family, the The scales in this comparison are bottomed out in one direction. Whatever this world can do to us, whatever we lose in this world, all of it is worth what we gain in Christ. It is worth the loss. It is worth having our goods taken. It is worth having our reputation destroyed for the sake of Jesus Christ. So I implore you today, as Aaron did last week, be bold, church family. But know the cost involved. But also know that he is worth it and that he will be with you every step of the way as we seek to follow him, as we commit ourselves to the words of Christ, as we make ways in this world. Let us cling to Christ and all of it and find our hope, find our insurance, and find the boldness that's found in him. Let's pray.